The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Ah, I love that sound. Hey, everybody. That. Welcome to the wine. Was a two-handed pour (laughs) (laughs) into a plastic cup. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm John Myers sitting with my really good friends, Brian Casey and Bart Hanson. Sam is due as he's on assignment. Sam is on the top of Nelligan Road right now looking over at us. From and the distance. From oh, the which distance. way can which way do we wave? And right there. So hey, hey, Sammy. Northeast, my friend. We're with <laughs> the infamous Mike Benziker. And thanks so much for having us over to your place. We are literally in the Garden of Eden here on uh, on the mountain, just what six blocks from Jack London State Park, if that. Actually, one inch. One, one inch. Yeah. So you, <laughs> we, you are contiguous. We you share a property line. But up to it. Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. that's incredible. I mean, and this is, you can grow anything here. And it's just absolutely beautiful. So your winery for how long have you been on this mountain, Mike? Yeah, we've been here since 1979. Uh, that's when my, my wife and my wife, Mary, and I, uh, with my uh, little girl, Inside my wife's tummy, Aaron, uh, discovered this piece of property. We drove up here uh, in the spring of 1979, and it was one of those things where we just instantaneously fell in love with with this piece of property. In fact, I'll never, I, I don't know if I've ever had this premonition as strong, a premonition like this as, as, as strong as I had at that time, but I had a when I first laid my eyes on this property, I had a, a vision that was so strong, so lucid, uh, so technicolor that this was going to be a special place for my family. That I had no choice but to make sure that somehow we got to, to uh, get control of this piece of property and, and move our family onto it. Well, it and, sure and as hell turned out correct, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it sure did. So, yeah. Mike, it, maybe that's a good place to start a little bit about the history of what what I always um, have known as being the ranch, and that is the original homestead of Benziger Family Winery. And could you talk a little bit about Dr. What was his name? Yeah, Doc, Dr. Flynn. So, anyway, so we pulled up to the front gate, and our mouths dropped open. Uh, I had this premonition. I know that Mary shared it with me, and uh, we drove down this this dusty old lane, um, and uh, of course it, it bears no rep, uh, no uh, uh, relation or, or um, you know bear, bears no resemblance to what it looks like today. Right. And uh, we knocked on the door, and I'll never forget it. This crazy long-haired hippie guy. He he must have been 70 years old. White hair, almost down to his waist. A white robe, you know. At that point, I said, "You know what? I've truly arrived in California." <laughs> there you go. You know, was this he is naked not, under the robe? We're, we're we're not in New York anymore, okay? <laughs> and he greeted us, and you know, the for the first thing that that we asked was if this place was for sale, because we were led to believe 
that they had, that the, this piece of property was for sale. And that's why you were you were up here. You yeah, were, we you came up here, you know, um, uh, under the idea that that the property was for sale. And uh, he had a friend that I had met in San Francisco, and we were tra tracking this lead down because we were looking for property at that time. So we knocked on the door, and this crazy hippie doctor comes to the front door, and we asked him if he wanted to sell the place. And he went into this rage on how he would never, ever sell this place. And, you know, uh -huh. would you look, look at this? Would you ever sell this place? I'm dying here. I would never leave this place. Uh, and so, of course, you know, we were heartbroken. Our mouths just, just dropped. But just before we, were, uh, we turned around and we were about to leave, uh, the doctor invited us back to a party on Memorial Day, and which was, you know, a couple of months, um, uh, you know, in the future. So we left, and uh, we talked about it, and we decided that we would go back up and, and check the place out, and who knows, things could change, right? So we, we came up here on Memorial Day, we partied with the guy, and we s pitched a tent on the back lawn of the nice. main house. Nice, nice. And <laughs> my wife with the little kid in the stomach and myself slept out on the back lawn. And that morning, the doctor came and shook the tent. And he goes, hey, Mike, are you still interested in <laughs> buying this place? Wow. And of course I said, hell yeah, for sure. He goes, okay, why don't you meet me around one o'clock um, up by the pool and, and we'll talk about it. Let's see how far we can get. So um, I... I I was very inexperienced. I really didn't know much about how to negotiate for a piece of property or, you know, what any of that was all about. So I drove down to the bottom of the hill and at the London Lodge, there used to be a payphone right on the side of the lodge between the lodge and the cannon. That dates it. Yeah. And uh, I called up my dad and uh, he, he didn't really have a lot of advice except <laughs> don't pay too much money. Right. But he said, maybe you ought to go down and get a contract. And you, he said, you, you can buy these ripoff contracts at the stationery store. So I drove into uh, Sonoma and uh, bought this tear-off sheet with this one-page contracts that you could, you know, buy a car, you know, buy a suitcase, you know, maybe buy a piece of property, and came back and uh, met with, with Dr. Flynn and his girlfriend, um, whose name was um, Benita Vantresca. I'll never forget that name, who not only turned out to be a girlfriend, but he, she was also a lawyer. And so as we started to talk, both of them took their clothes off <laughs> and they were totally naked laying out in the sun at the pool. Well, I'm there with Mary, of course, we're, you know, we have our clothes on and, you know, uh, we just figured again that, hey, wow, this is California. It doesn't get any better than this. And as we started to talk, of course, he lights up a huge spleef. <laughs> I mean, a cigar shaped spleef. And, of course, he hands it over to me. I take, I take the, the most minimum hit I could possibly take and, and still not be rude. And, of course, him and uh, Benita just, you know, smoked the whole thing down in about 30 seconds. <laughs> so we ended up, uh, you know, bantering back and forth. And it became we obvious. in California. <laughs> it became obvious that, you know, he wanted somewhere around a million dollars for the property. And what were you thinking that, that they were going to ask for the property? What, like, what kind of figure was in your head that you thought? I was hoping, you know, that, that it would be under a million dollars. You know, yeah. and I had, I had seen enough pieces of property at, by that time um, that I knew a little bit about what property could be worth. 
Um, but not so much in Napa and Sonoma because we looked more or less in Mendocino County, Lake County. We looked down in Monterey where the prices were a lot cheaper because we didn't really have a lot of money. Uh, and then when we got the lead to this place, um, you know, we just decided to, we just tracked all leads down. That's, that's what we did. And so, you know, it, it, he didn't, he wanted to somehow get a million dollars. And so we figured out some way of laddering it so that he could get a million dollars over time. And I signed the contract and that was on a Saturday and on Wednesday, I was back in, in, uh, in Livermore where I was working. He called me up and he goes, hey, sorry, Sonny, but the deal's off. I, I changed my mind. Oh, shit. You know, I said, <laughs> and uh, so I was like, oh, God. And, uh, but I said, hey, you know, I, I got this piece of paper you signed. Um, it's a contract. Doesn't it mean anything? And he goes, ah, that's just a shitty piece of paper. Throw it away. Deal's off. Okay. See you later. So anyway, um, I called my dad. And uh, he didn't really have much advice, except do you know anybody out there that could take a look at it? And um, Mary's brother had a really good friend. His name was Gary Cavello, who was a, uh, a top-notch lawyer uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and I went down and saw Gary, and he goes, Mike, I, I, you know what? I think I can make this stick. It's going to take a little time, but we might be able to make this stick. On Halloween night, or on Halloween... We met at the lawyer's office. I signed the deal, the contract in one room, and he signed it in the other room. We never talked to each other. And we moved on to the property on Halloween night. Excellent. Good yeah. story. Yeah. Where are you from in New York? Originally, Upstate? I was born in, uh, in the Bronx. Oh, okay. And then moved up to the White Plains area when I was like around 10. Very so cool. we were um, all, all five of... of um, the first family members were kind of we're kind of we our family was kind of produced in two stages the first five and then this the the second half of the the most privileged children <laughs> kathy and chris hear that chris the gold, hear that, kathy? the golden the golden couple right in other words my parents took a break of maybe uh four or five years between the first five and the, and when they decided to have a couple more kids they said we're not going to fuck this one up <laughs> so they actually made them live in a separate part of the house and they had a whole new set of rules for these kids, and we hated them. Wow. We did everything we could to, could to make their life miserable. So uh, anyway, I forgot where I was going that's, with that's that one. No, 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 that's you. right. Yeah. So, you, so you guys lived in White Plains. You were the first one to come to California. Yes. Um, but a couple of your siblings worked in. Uh, Joe and Bobby had a liquor store. Is that right? At that yeah, time, Would yeah. that be about that time? Yeah, we have a family history of being in the spirits business. Right. And um, sometime in the, the late 70s, Joey and Bobby uh, bought a, a, a liquor store in uh, East Chester, New York, okay. which is, you know, just right near Yonkers and, and just outside of New York City. Okay. And uh, still with a wicked New York accent in that area. And um, so they had, you know, so there's been, there was experience in the, in the wine business. Right. But back in those days, you know, the wine business especially in New York, was an imported wine business. Right. You, you, you found very few French wines. As a matter of fact, when I started you mean my very job... Few, very few American jobs. Yeah, very, yeah, very few American wines or California wines. When I started my job in 1973 at Beltramos in Menlo Park, they had maybe one or two Pinot Chardonnays on the shelf. And what do you think the number one selling wine 
was at the store? On, alloca- on allocation. Oh, on allocation. Uh, Char- Charles Krug, Shannon Blanc. There you really? Go. Yep. And then oh. it was Wenty, Wenty Blanc de Blanc. Yeah. Uh, Bell Green Hungarian. And uh, maybe Mirasu Pinot Blanc or something like that. But those were by far the, the, um, the most popular wines. So let's talk a little bit about Beltramos. Um, you started there in what year was it again? Uh, 1973. So was that... That was your first job moving out here? Yeah. And that was then, my first and job. And then from there, you worked for, I, I'm sorry, I'd drawn a blank on the winery that was down in, in South Bay. Yeah, I worked for about two years at Beltramos. Okay. And then um, Mary and I saved up enough money. Um, ten, actually, $10,000 was our goal. And I don't know how we did it, but we were both working for $4.50 an hour. But we worked a shit wow. pile of overtime. And uh, we were just really uh, frugal, and we saved up $10,000, and we spent a year in Europe in 1975-76 studying wine. And so we rode all over um, Bordeaux, all over Burgundy, all over the the, uh, Rheingau, Rheinfaltz, the Moselle, went down and rode through the Rhone Valley, all on bicycles um, with Hugh Johnson's (laughs) World Atlas of Wine (laughs) strapped to the back of the bike. And everywhere we went, we would make little notes on the, uh, in the uh, atlas, and we would maybe take a rock or two from the vineyard and put it in a little b- uh, bag that we had, and we labeled it up. You don't and have those rocks still, do you? I had this bag full of rocks, Romani Conti, Eschazot, Richborg, you know, uh, Mouton, Rothschild. They were all confiscated at customs. When I tried to get God, back, you were bringing the rocks back, and they about a box of rocks. <laughs> there you go. They, uh, I forgot. You know, they don't let you, they don't even let you bring shoes in anymore with, uh, with mud well, on Well, you them, know, right? vegetation is a big thing. They don't want things coming into the U.S. But rocks, yeah. You know, I mean, I've stolen rocks in every vineyard I've been in in France, and you know, you pick it up and you. I, I never got caught. So anyway, it's kind of like you know, you 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 have your whole life's biography written, and you get out of the car, and and it, a big wind comes up, and it just all blows. <laughs> down the street and you never find it again it was like within 30 seconds there was a whole year's worth of dreams and work just poof gone that was yeah, it yeah well you but had, i still had the you book got the memories i still yeah, had the book yeah, and yeah. uh not a lot of photographs back in those days because you know the, it was hard to bring you know the hump a camera and then it was even harder to, to, to deal All with the, the film. film yeah yeah i i did have a camera in the very beginning that was actually stolen from underneath my head when I was asleep inside of a Catholic church. Good so, Lord. Somebody stole my whole backpack with Oh, they're 20, going they're going to hell. With I twenty with twenty rolls like. of exposed film. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Man. And 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 a camera. That's what Guinness does for you when you start drinking Guinness at 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, because what are you guys doing? Are you just staying in hostels? Are you staying in tents? How are you where are you sleeping at night when you're just biking we, around? We uh, we slept uh, in the for the first month, at hostels and off on the side of the road, and then we bought a Ford Transit in Germany, and slept in that for the for the rest of the time. Nice. And Mike, there's a uh, pup tent in the front yard of your house up here. Yeah, that would have Is been that, the Ritz Carlton back in in, in those <laughs> days. Let me tell you, who's staying out there? 
Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's my granddaughters. That's where they they get timed out. There you go. <laughs> Boy, hey, that's a time tough place out, to be out here. Out. Yeah, right. But <laughs> it's 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 the perfect spot. Yeah. So you anyway, well, so I so we had this remarkable trip to to Europe, and uh, you know we kind of went to to the Sistine Chapel of you know Burgundy, Sistine Chapel of Bordeaux, and and uh, German wines and so on and so forth, and <coughs> it really just deepened our our interest and our commitment to the wine business. You know, and, and uh, I think a- after that trip, we, we, we knew that we wanted to be in this business for the rest of our life. Wow. And so when we got back, uh, we were able to get a job. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just, I got some. Yeah, no worries. <coughs> yeah, it's all okay. So, you know, at that point, we, we knew that we wanted to commit to the wine business. And so um, uh, when we got back to the United States... We got a job working at a, a winery uh, in Livermore, actually in Pleasanton. And um, it turned out to be one damn good place to learn because they didn't know how to make good wine. And the owner was really cheap. And he would only buy the worst grapes and then ask us to blend it in a way that would make drop-dead gold medal wines. <laughs> So we had to take dog dew A and blend it with dog dew B, and we had to pull a gold rabbit out of the hat. And let me tell you, it was the best learning experience that I've ever had. And, you know, um, and back in those days, I was, I was a purist. And that taught me really quick that there was a lot of tricks in winemaking out there that uh, if you, you know, if you were willing to try them, you could, you could do some, some things to make some pretty nasty wines palatable, you know? I mean, we're not talking about poisoning anybody, um, but we called it uh, petite cuisine. <laughs> there you go. Good name. Cook, cooking it up in the back room a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it, it really, what it, what it did was this um, uh, apprenticeship really taught us how to blend wine. Yeah. And that became really the basis for our success in our next adventure, which was the Glen Ellen, uh, and and developing the propri- proprietor reserve right. blend, which and, was and which was all blended wines. And, and so when when you, the family brought now now we take it back to going back to the property in Glen Ellen. So you guys, you and Mary moved onto the property. You decided you were going to start a winery. Did you know at that point it was going to be called Glen Ellen? Did you know that you were going to call it Benziger? Uh, what, what, what was the thought process there? Had Bruno already decided he was moving out here? Were you guys going at it yourself first, and then they moved? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we moved out here, um, you know, uh, like I said, on Halloween. And uh, the plan was eventually for family members to start moving out to, to help build the winery and plant a vineyard and so on and so forth because the property was... In, in, in very deep disrepair. The buildings were falling down. The roof leaked. It's yeah. also immense. It's also Huge. 100 acres. Yeah. And when we bought it, there was maybe five acres of Cabernet Sauvignon, but there was also a solid quarter of an acre of marijuana. And, of course, that was the first major decision that we had to make as a family is which business were we going to get in? <laughs> it's an easy decision. 
Yeah. Things, things could yeah, have it, it would have been a much easier decision if it was 2018. Oh, right. <laughs> not, not, not 1979, 1980. Yeah, I'm picturing yeah. Sons of Anarchy. Things could have gone in a very different direction up here. Things could have gone in a very different direction. And so, you know, and it, it, it wasn't a, a, a snap decision. It wasn't as easy as it sounded. You know, there was, there was definitely a contingency that, that wanted to... Uh, you know, be a renegade California, you know, uh, rancher up here and, and stick with the with the cannabis. Um, but as it turned out, um, over time, my little brothers and sisters, um, you know, they told me they got rid of it a little bit at a time, usually by <laughs> burning it a little bit at a time. Well, cannabis grows really well in this valley and on this mountain, doesn't it? It grows really well. Like it, you said, I think in the beginning, it. almost anything can grow good up here. This is this is a, a virtual Garden of Eden. I have Where never seen more honeybees. I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at thousands of bees. And anyone that that is curious about that sound, it's the um, you've got a little motor running on the uh, compost tea over there. So that's that sound you hear in the in the background. But Brian, set the, you're very good at this. Set the stage of what we're looking at here. And well, if if you're in Glen Ellen and you drive up towards the Benziger Winery or uh, Jack London State Park, I mean we're well, yeah. Right. Okay. So we're you know we're we're up on the we're up on the right. mountain, and and the Benziger property is a little bowl, um, so we're just kind of um, you know from where we sit because of the trees around all you see is blue sky, trees and plants, and flowers. flowers, vegetables. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could be anywhere in the world right now, actually. <laughs> and, and it's a spectacular, sunny California day yeah. uh, in September. And, yeah. and, and also, understand something, everybody here. Mike, Mike has um, started a new career in um, this farm that he's growing all these amazing vegetables and plants on. And um, all farm biodynamically. Um, which we'll get to a little bit later on. But it is just alive with honeybees um, you know, all over be, the be, place. It might be kind of interesting if, I, if maybe later I can turn that motor off and then you can stick that microphone in that bush. Get a little buzz. And you want to get a buzz. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. is the ultimate buzz right yeah. there. Yeah. Well, you can stick your head in there and not one <laughs> bee will bite you. They're, they are so honey drunk. They're, they're trained. Or nectar, <laughs> they're so nectarized. Well, you know, and that always makes me think about and when, when you're somewhere where people are so concerned with the bees. And, you know, the bees want nothing to do with us. They, they, want, they just want to have honey and nectar. And, and, and we them a need place the bees. Be, I mean, you know? seriously. Yeah. And with all the chemicals worldwide, they're killing them. You know, I mean, it's a real disaster. Yeah. So I've, I've worked on this piece of property in this garden here going on four years, and I've never been stung. And I have my head in those bushes, neck deep all the time. Well, it's like it's like <laughs> people say when you know when you're around bears. Uh, the best time to be in Alaska around the bears is during salmon season when when they they've got so many fish in their paws and in their mouths. They want nothing to do with you. You can get pretty close and snap some photos, but uh, yeah, I think these bees are. Uh, I think they're pretty happy right now. They, I don't see any I, I reason. Would be. There's no reason to be mad at us. That's for sure. No. Just don't get. Just don't wear that salmon uh, outfit that your wife is going to make you wear. Okay, <laughs> before you go out and look at bears. <laughs> right. <laughs> so okay, so let's uh, go back to Glen Ellen Winery. Is started. Um, you started to mention it that proprietors reserve um, all the wines were blended um, at this time in the wine business. Um, 
you I can't say that the two for seven uh, market was hot because you guys founded the two bottles for seven bucks uh, market. And that was done with Glen Ellen Proprietors Reserve. So, so just backing up a little bit. So, you know, we moved in, into the property here, like I said, right around Halloween. And then um, the next year, uh, about the, the beginning of uh, the next year in January, my dad started to come out maybe once a month. And, um, you know, he was in charge of getting the building permits and, and hiring an architect to start designing the, uh, the winery uh, and so on and so forth. And, of course, we were very inexperienced at doing this, and we didn't know how to fill the forms out. We didn't do things in the, in the right order. And so our use permits were delayed, 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 and we did not start construction of the winery until July 5th. And the reason I can remember that exact date is because all of us had hangovers, maybe among the worst that we've ever had, <laughs> Because it was our very first 4th of July in Glen Ellen here. And we ended up meeting all of our neighbors in town. Of course, each one of them had to have a drink with us. And so we woke up on the morning of July 5th, let me tell you, with a very, very groggy, cobwebby <laughs> mind to start construction of the winery. And then, of course, that kind of set the tone for things. Right. And as we moved along, it became obvious to us in September that we would not have a winery, we would not have tanks, and we would not have barrels to crush into, and the harvest was coming. 1980, 1980, 1980 was a earlier harvest, and so um, the grapes were ready, but we weren't. And so that's when we decided that we had to do a little strategic planning. There you go. So we all went down to the, to the London Lodge at the bottom of the hill, yeah, because we always did our best thinking over a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah. The lower office. The lower office. And we just started uh, brainstorming ideas like bathtubs, big buckets. You know, it's like, what the hell are we going to do? And there just happened to be a guy by the name of Barry Gold who was sitting at the bar. And Barry Gold owned a junkyard down on A Street. It's not there anymore. But overhearing the conversation, he came up to the table and said, hey, I have two old milk trucks that you guys can rent from me. I'll tow them up here, no charge, and you can crush your grapes into them. And we kind of laughed at him and said, ah, we're not fucking our grapes up by crushing them into fucking milk trucks. There's no way. I mean, that, that would be suicide. I mean, this is our first harvest. We've got to do this thing right. But after another week, we found out that we had absolutely zero options. And so we called Barry, and he hauled the, the uh, two milk trucks up to the property, and uh, both of them had this uh, almost half-naked woman on the on the truck side of the truck with, you know, drink milk today or have a cup or whatever, you know. <laughs> it was the era. <laughs> yeah. Milk, it does a body good. Yeah, something like that, exactly. And uh, we crushed our first Sauvignon Blanc into one milk truck, and we crushed our first Chardonnay into the second milk truck. Now, these are milk trucks with no refrigeration. So every morning, my mom drove into Sonoma and bought two huge sacks of dry ice wow. that we dumped into the top of the, um, uh, of the milk trucks. And every time we dumped it in, they would explode with foam all over the place. And, you know, by the end of the day, the amount of fruit flies that were on and in the <laughs> fermentation yep. was mind-boggling, the smell of vinegar, and it was just like, holy shit, we fucked this one up. 
we're, we are going to be toast. This is our first vintage out of the bo uh, blocks. It's already ruined. What the hell are we going to do? You know, you only get one try at this, right? And so, you know, as things went on, we, we got the wine through fermentation. We got it into barrels. And um, somehow we were talked into uh, entering these two wines into the harvest fair, uh, which we didn't really want to do. And uh, so, but we entered them. And figuring that we would not have, uh, figuring that we would have zero chance of having any kind of placement at this, at this competition, nobody from the family showed up. And I got a call from Rich Thomas about 7.30 that evening saying, hey, Mike, you need to drive up here right now. Something crazy is happening. You're not going to believe it. I can't tell you, but you're not going to believe it. You've got to get here right now. So I got you know, threw a shirt on and drove up and had no idea what I was getting into. Walked through the doors, and it was this you know, giant harvest fair. First time I was ever, uh, ever, uh, ever went to the fair. I was half asleep, and all of a sudden I was mobbed by reporters, having no idea why. And I had learned that the Sauvignon Blanc that we had crushed into the milk truck won the sweepstakes. Wow. And the Chardonnay <laughs> that we crushed nice. into the other milk truck nice. won the runner-up for the, milk, for the sweepstakes. <laughs> well, you, you swept it. No, no winery had ever won first and second place. Which was mind-boggling because, well, first of all, we didn't even know what that meant, you know? Nice. And this was something. your first one out of the gate, too. First one out of the gate, fermented in, in, a, in a milk truck, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, that would... Hello, everybody. We're taking calls today on the podcast. <laughs> that's, okay. that's, that's actually the Glen Ellen Star uh, yeah, placing their uh, vegetable order for tonight. That was actually Ari. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he's not taking yeah. no for an answer. Ari. Hey, Ari. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, hey! I'm I'm live on the air right now on a on a radio show, and uh, they wanted me to pick this up to say hi to you. But uh, can I call you back? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, I'll be I'll be right back to you about the Molino deal. Yeah, you got it. All right, there you go. The Molino deal. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, it, it it really you know of course turned out to be the the biggest thing that that ever happened to us because you know it put us right on the map right from the get go and. Um, instantly we sold out all the Sauvignon Blanc and, and, and instantly we sold out all the Chardonnay like within a week it was gone there was a thousand cases of each and boom and do you remember what two vineyards those grapes came from one was from uh, Le Pierre Vineyards uh, uh, Bryce, Pierre, Bryce, Bryce, Bryce Jones Bryce Jones so I'm a Cotrera. Yep, and the other one was from Shiloh Vineyards another Bryce Jones property Okay. Well. so Bryce and I were, were, were good friends but after that event we fought all the time over which grapes at, at, uh, at Le Pierre he was going to get and which grapes I was going to get. And it finally got down to every other vine. Oh, man. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and he would be out there watching, and I'd be out there watching, and one vine would go into my pile, one vine would go into his pile, you know. And then eventually I got kicked out of there. But uh, it, was, it was a good run. And he, he, was, he was okay about it, too. So it was all good. But, you know, the... the the, the, the long and the short of it was is that uh, my dad had moved out here just before harvest, and he was the consummate salesman. And all he wanted to do was get his hands on some wine to sell. And what happened was, it, to, you know, to his happiness and, and horror, he had no wine to sell because it all sold itself right away. 
<laughs> so Tell him that's that's the way we wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> and so he goes, Mike, you got to go out there and find some wine for me to sell. You got to do it. And I didn't. I, I had never never even thought about going out and buying bulk wine and using somebody else's wine. Right. You know, because I I was developing this model based on what I saw in Bordeaux and Burgundy and you know, boutique, boutique, going out there, buying the best grapes, putting them in the best oak, so on and so forth, and never even crossed my mind to um, have a, um, you know, a, a blended um, everyday uh, blend. So, uh, but anyway, he talked us into it, and uh, my, uh, my partner, uh, Bruce Rector and I, who ended up becoming a partner in, in the winery itself, um, we started to go out and look around for excess wine, and this was in 1980, 1981, and it became evident pretty quickly that there was an incredible amount of bulk wine out there that wineries were sitting on, but were way too embarrassed to talk about, and they were price protecting because the you know the Chardonnays back in Cabernets back in those days were selling between twelve and twenty dollars a bottle on the shelf, Fremark Abbeys and, and Chateau Montalena's and, and the Burgesses oh. and, and uh, Stag's Leap, you know, they were in that $20 range. And, um, but they were only selling a few hundred or maybe a thousand cases and they were sitting on huge amounts of incredible wine. And so the first wine that we purchased was an incredible Cabernet Sauvignon made from an Alexander Valley vineyard uh, that we bought from uh, uh, Huneus for a dollar ninety a gallon <laughs> with 120 day terms and that wine buck 90 a gallon huh that wine was absolutely incredible so we bought i don't know a couple of truckloads and uh bottled that up and uh, called it cabernet sauvignon and because of the pricing and the, and the uh and the terms we were able to to get it on the shelf for 3.99 a bottle wow an Alexander Valley Appalachian Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, it evaporated as quickly as the, uh, the wines did that won the Sweepstakes <laughs> Award, you know. And so we went out and we bought another batch of wine. And uh, we, we went and we met with Ed Segatio, uh, who was a tough negotiator, and he beat the shit out of me. And uh, I bought his uh, French Columbard for two fifty a gallon. Wow. But we, it was really good, you know, French Columbard that was like 90-year-old vines. Right, right. You know, and tasted super good. We didn't have to put any oak on it or anything. Just right. bottled it straight up and boom, wow. that went out. We called that just Proprietor's Reserve White. But as we kept hunting around, we found out that was there was not only a hell of a lot of Cabernet out there, there was also a hell of a lot of Chardonnay. And so by 1984 we were able to line up enough Chardonnay where we could actually label it Chardonnay. Hmm. And I'll never forget, there was a, f a phone call I was on to, to my distributor in New York, and it was about whether we should change the name of Proprietor's Reserve White to Proprietor's Reserve Chardonnay. And the guy goes, well, if you can call it Chardonnay, I will buy a truckload right now. And wow. before that, we were maybe selling a truckload a month. I mean, not even, you know, maybe a couple hundred cases. Change that name to a distributor. And so um, we said, okay, we'll do it. And we bottled the first Chardonnay, in I think in 1984. And again, it sold as quickly as the Cabernet did. We, we could not keep either of them in stock. 
And so over the next couple of years, we, with Bruce Rector's help and, and the, the other uh, folks in Glenn Proctor and, and some of the other amazing people that worked at the winery, we actually drained all of the bulk wine <laughs> that was in the wine business. Wow. I mean, we drained it. And in 1985, we re regrouped and went out and started to sign grape contracts, and which turned out to be one of the, the unknowns to us, but one of the smartest things we ever did is that within one month, we had signed up every single available Chardonnay vineyard from Bakersfield all the way up to Reading. That's quite a demand. Mike, it really is. Well, you've got to remember, this is in the 1980s, and right. there wasn't as much Chardonnay as there is, but we did do a lot of it. And what happened was, is that that prevented Kendall Jackson, it prevented the Sebastianis, it prevented uh, the Fetzers <laughs> from really getting into the business. And we had a clear playing field blocked for, three, for three years. And by 1988, um, we sold... Over a million cases of, of um, holy shit of uh, the proprietor's reserve, and by 1989, we sold a million cases of just Chardonnay. So one of the one of the <laughs> proudest moments of my life was, and and I know Bruce Bruce uh, would would always talk about this too. We got Best Buy in the Wine Spectator, and then the volume. Was one million plus cases. <laughs> I had never seen that before. Plenty you know, to like, buy. Yeah, I don't think anyone <laughs> I didn't know whether to be embarrassed or not with that with that number. Um, oh man, it had to make you so happy. Well, it was just kind of fun being being a whole part of this phenomena, you know, because it was uh, we were we were all very young. Um, none of us really knew what we were doing. We had an incredible amount of enthusiasm. There was not a brick wall that we didn't want to run run through. We'd, we'd build brick walls and then run through them. Right. And um, we, we just had this remarkable chemistry that maybe if you get that once in your life, you consider yourself the luckiest person in the world. You know? And so Glen Ellen um, had a great run. And then in 1973, uh, we saw that the business was changing. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, 1993. 1993. 93, we saw the business yeah, was changing. Um, and that the consumer was starting to move up. In other words, the, the Glen Ellen and the, uh, the Fetzers and the Sebastianis and the, and the Kennel Jackson had um, piqued people's interest in Chardon Cab, and they wanted to try uh, better stuff. Right. You know, they wanted to move from the fighting varietals to, um, to uh, the luxury part of the business. And so we saw in 1993 that there was an opportunity for us to move from a, a, uh, a category that was getting extremely competitive, take some money out and to invest it in the, in the next level of the wine business. So we sold Benziger, I'm sorry, we sold Glen Ellen in 1993 when it was at 3.9 million cases. And it was purchased by a company called Grand Metropolitan or Ubeline. They own Burger King, Haagen-Dazs ice cream and uh, the um, Mike, I want, I want you to talk right into that. Okay. There you go. And, a, and, a, and absolute Perfect. and stuff. And, um, you know, like all big companies, they purchased it. And over a period of five or six years, they put it to sleep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you they know, really just kind of destroyed they it. Ju they just milked it for what it was worth. And um, once they got their payback, um, 
you know, they they really didn't weren't interested in in growing the brand. They never grew it a, a case bigger than the, the day that we purchased it from them. Unfortunately, it was kind of disheartening to see what happened to it over time. But you know, that also taught us a lesson too that um, you know it it takes more than just you know looking at a balance sheet and a marketing plan to to pull off success. Right. You know, you you have to go out there and develop relationships. Yeah. And, you know, this was before social media, so our social media was a plane ticket. And a handshake. You know? That's it. Yeah. 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 I don't know if you remember, there was this, many years ago, there's, there was this United uh, Air, Airlines commercial where this old uh, boss with his shirt hanging out uh, came, came, called his office together and said, hey, we just lost our biggest customer today. I want you to all get on an airplane yep. and go keep Hand the, cust- the tickets. Go, get, go keep the customers we got and go get some new ones. Uh, and that's one thing that uh, my dad, Bruno, always taught us is that never take a customer for granted and that you're always creating the condition for a sale. And the religion was at that Glen Ellen was working backwards from the shelf. So mm. it wasn't what you liked. It's what the consumer wanted yeah. if you wanted to be successful. Yeah. So 1993, we switched gears and we... Uh, um, we switched over to, to the Benziger brand, which was a brand that sold from, you know, roughly $8.99, $9.99 for Sauvignon Blanc up to about 20 bucks a bottle for, for the cabs and the Chardonnays, which well, we would call the premium, super premium back in those days and, and the luxury part of the business. And Mike, what kind of grapes were growing up here at that time at, on this property? on the, uh, the, the Benziger property. When you took it over, what, what exactly, what varietals were on the property? When we took it over, there was just one varietal planted. It was Cabernet Sauvignon. Wow. And it went into uh, the Kenwood Artist Series. Huh. Mike Lee was, was um, the, in, in charge of the, the farming practices here. And, uh, you know, of course, he got pissed off when we bought the place. But he was also an incredible gentleman because he introduced us to uh, Bryce Jones, who ended up selling us the Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc that we won right. the sweepstakes to. Right. There was an incredible competition between the Benzigers and the Kenwood crew. Um, you know, I think the Benzigers kind of looked at the the Kenwood crew looked at the Benzigers being upstarts from New York. What did they know? And heathens. And heathens, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they had all this success, you know, and, and, and Mike was always suspect of that because I worked at Kenwood in the 80s, you right. know, um, at any rate. Um, There's a lot they, of... But they were all very close. Oh, my God. A lot of wine being sold between those two companies. Seriously. And, and I got to tell you something, you know, th- that was probably the golden days of the California wine business because... Those were the times when we were all friends. Uh, we all traded war, war stories. We gave each other leads, and we kind of, you know, considered of, uh, considered all of us in the same boat together. You know, it was it was more cooperation than it was competition. You know, although we all like to win that gold medal, you know, it, we we always rooted for the guy right behind us to to win the the half gold medal. You know, or or the yeah, or, or, right. or the silver or the silver <laughs> plus. Okay, and so we were all really good friends, and 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 Mike Lee was one of the most gracious guys he had he introduced us to grape growers and essentially what he did is he gave us the gun loaded the bullets in for us and then we shot him (laughs) (laughs) and he he smiled and he smiled at us and gave us more bullets he knew what he was he was a great guy and you know he he was one of those guys that that knew that if everybody did good in this valley it was good for for him too 
And, you know, I mean, uh, we, were, we, we had a, a great group of guys at St. Francis, the Bunchus, and the Spastianis, and the, and the, the, the Lees, and the Kenwood folks. And, and uh, God, it was a blast. We had yeah. so much fun. Well, then, so when do you start planting new stuff up uh, on property? You say, we can't, we can't possibly do all Cabernet. Uh, we want a little diversity. Um, so we're going to rip some stuff out. And, uh, and who decides what you're going to plant? Yeah, so um, it became obvious to us pretty quickly that this was, was a special piece of property because it was a, it was a bowl uh, on the side of a volcano. Yeah. And the soils were, were super minerally. And... Uh, Hey, Sam. Hey, hey, how are Mr. Curry, how are you, buddy? <laughs> is, is that Curry? Curry? Yeah. Penny and Curry? Penny is, is a very friendly dog that loves to hang out with Curry. Yeah, Curry is a very friendly dog as well who Just likes to hang out with territory. people who have cheese <laughs> for the most part. Face, so I guess they're friends already. <laughs> That's what you do in Glentucky Farms, right? Yes, That's how you yes, say hi to people. Yesterday, <laughs> she went to the compost pile and dug a dead skunk. Oh. Out of the pile, dragged it up to the the uh, mat on the front door of my house. A so present for you, Dad. Tore the the skunk jerky apart oh. until she had it. You know, you can imagine what her breath smelled like. Yeah, I can. And you know, of course, <laughs> every once in a while you get a good uh, a good skunk smell. Yeah. You know. So anyway, Sam, we were just talking about um, the the property here okay. and. Um, you know, what, what the decision-making process was in uh, deciding what to plant. Right. And, um, you know, usually that, that, that decision had a lot to do with what your neighbors were doing, too, mm -hmm. especially back in those days. And uh, my mentor was a guy by the name of Milo Shepard, who uh, ran the Jack London Ranch right up here. He was, he was a great guy. And a, a relative of Jack London, right? Yeah, kind of a, 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 a relative, like, once removed. Yeah. Yeah. They, they still haven't figured out where the blood is, but... They all look like Jack London, let's the call it, let's, let's call it a relative. Yeah, especially, yeah, yeah. especially the kids. And so... Um, especially the girls. Yeah, yeah, very much. So Milo became my mentor. And, uh, you know, finally one day he goes, Hey, Mike, listen, I, I gave you all the information that I can give you. Why don't you go talk to this other new guy that just moved in up the street and maybe he could give you a little bit more, you know, insight into what to do around here. So I went up and knocked on the door, introduced myself, and the guy started laughing at me because you know why? Because he had already lived there for 30 years. <laughs> and he, he was, was still the new guy. He was the new guy. <laughs> and I said to myself, holy shit, this is going to take a while to break into this community. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was good. Yeah, so I mean, Cabernet is what really does well on Sonoma Mountain. And uh, once we had an idea of, of the character, texture, you know, of the, of the, the cab and, and the quality of the tannins, then that gave us uh, an idea of, of exactly how much Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and Malbec to plant, right. you know, as your spice, spice rack wine, so to speak, that would uh, dress up the cab. But the tribute that uh, was first uh, produced off this property in 2000 was always about 70 to 80% cab, right. cab-based wine. Right. And uh, we produced a, a very small amount of uh, Sauvignon Blanc off the property called um, uh, Paradis.
Well, hey, everybody. Uh, sorry for the abrupt end on uh, with Mike Benziker, but we will continue. A um, couple of uh, large dogs just uh, ran over the power well, supply and disconnected one, us. One, one kind of large, one, one small right. puppy. It was it was nothing but Curry's fault. At nothing but Curry. We are joined Instagram. by Sam Katuri, and Mike Benziker is going Mike to be back with us. And so... Sam, how is everything today? Good. I, I uh, spent the morning walking a bunch of white wine, uh, white grape vineyards with my dad and uh, our winemaker in training, Alejandro. And, uh, you know, everything's. We were out a week or two later than we picked them last year. Um, so well, I want to welcome everybody back now to episode 68 uh, with Mike Benziger, and <laughs> uh, we'll just kind of continue because we were just getting into, you know, you, you had just sold Glen Ellen, and you were just starting the Benziger line, and, and um, you know, I didn't get out here until way too late. I, I didn't get here until imagery was built. And 1985. That, that is, you know, so that's that's my start going back and meeting Joey. You know, I think the first place I went when I uh, lived in Glen Ellen um, was the pub. Yeah, of course, the Jack London pub. Met Joey in there. Met everybody. You know, uh, Tom Dininger was the uh, photographer who lived upstairs. Oh yeah. So he was a good buddy of mine. We did a lot of a uh, lot of photo work around the area, and absolutely loved. Where it. did Tom end up now? I, I, Tom I missed is, the guy. Tom is uh, moving to Mesa, Arizona, and basically he says it's just pretty simple. It's because it's allergies. Here in the Valley of uh, the Moon, a valley of a thousand allergens. The valley of where everything grows and blooms all year round. Yes, it does. Uh, and so he's, he's down in, in, in Mesa as of right now. Uh, so, but I talk to him a lot and he's doing well, having a good time. So uh, we'll start again and just you know, you know pick it up where we were talking we were, about. Yeah, kind of I kind of forgot. What, what, maybe we were talking about Merlot and uh, the 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 blend in the tribute, and then the Sauvignon Blanc off the Benziger property. Well, the reason for planting what you what yeah. you planted uh, that was on the, the key, property. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so we uh, we planted a small amount of Sauvignon Blanc, um, and we call it the uh, Paradiso de Maria. It was it was named after my wife Mary because uh, it was her favorite wine. As a matter of fact, uh, we made a lot of fun of uh, of her because she would drink at least one bottle. Every day, so we had to figure that when we, when we made this wine and, and planted the vineyard, we had to work backwards on a bottle a day. So we needed we needed to make sure that we produced at least 365 bottles of this of the particular blend. But it was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. So about a barrel and a half at least. At least a yearly allotment. So so uh, in house consumption. Kind of an interesting story. So um, you know the first grapes that we got. Um, Sauvignon Blanc grapes were, were from Bryce Jones from the Shiloh Vineyard. And uh, after a couple of years, uh, Bryce made the decision that Sonoma Coutrere was only going to produce Chardonnay. And so they uh, needed to get, get out of all of their, their vineyards with other varieties. Um, so the day came where Bryce bulldozed all the Sauvignon Blanc into a huge pile. And he gave me a call and told me what he did. And I said, hey, that's great, Bryce. Thanks for telling me about that. 
but do you mind if I go and, and climb up that pile and cut as much budwood as I possibly can? Because the rumor was is that he selected that budwood from specific vineyards in the Sancerre region. And so like somehow smuggled nice. suitcase selection. Smuggled in the in the wood back in the uh, the nineteen eighties, seventies, and eighties. <laughs> and they and wouldn't let you back in with a bag of rocks, but he smuggled. Uh, yeah, but he was smarter stuff. than me. He he figured the smuggling part of it out. I was just threw the suitcase <laughs> I, up I, on, I the, like the on the table and smiled. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I I got the budwood and uh, we grafted it uh, onto um, actually AXR one, which is still. In existence today, it's the oldest vines on the property. On AXR. On AXR. And so they, they no, have, no phylloxera. They have phylloxera, but they, they, do, and they just but they just carry they, the power roots. Through. The roots are so deep right now. It 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 might not have had water for maybe seven or eight years. Wow. And with all the root profiling that we've done, there's huge roots that are maybe be an inch thick, as deep as a backhoe could go, and that was seven or eight feet. Right. Wow. Biodynamics, baby. Biodynamics. Yeah, and it and it just the it's one of those vineyards that has just reached its perfect formula. It never needs to be thinned. Maybe a little bit of leaf pulling a, a day or two before we pick it, but it's just it's totally self-regulated itself. And and this is the time of year, and this is what I was seeing walking the vineyard today. Is this is the time of year where biodynamic farming and organic farming pays off. Yeah, when you have these vines that are healthy and strong, they have root systems like that, and we're sitting here waiting for ripeness, and sort of irregardless of, of sugar, and those vines are they're just chugging along without getting watered with you know through whatever weather getting thrown at them. Uh, so that's you know six yeah, feet deep, inch wide roots is pretty amazing. Yeah, so you know that's what I see with vineyards that are farmed. You know, with that kind of level of regenerative farming techniques, is that um, you see grapevines that have a uh, a green canopy to it. It's not dark green like you get from feeding a vine a lot of nitrogen, and it's not a yellow green that you get from uh, vine stress that's too early. Right. But these vines are are in 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 perfect sync with where they are in their uh, ripening transition. Right. You know, so at, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to pick those those uh, grapes when they taste great and the leaves just around the, the, the clusters are just starting to lose their color a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that great video where you guys actually took a backhoe in between the rows and dug down to check root systems. I don't know if that's something you did on a regular basis, but it's amazing to go. You guys, you were like you were in the hole. I remember seeing this video. You were you were down there eight nine feet and you got the roots running all the way down and you were saying if you can get your roots down there that's when you know you got something you got a uh, sense of place you got terroir in those grapes they're not just hanging out uh, like giving your kids uh, sugar and soda yeah. you want them down there digging for the good stuff yeah no we uh, had we had some um some some great help too we had uh claude and uh, lydia bourguignon um come over from dijon and there they are uh, microbiologists that specialize in uh, soil microorganisms and they came on the property twice and uh, looked at um, our microbiome that was living in the soil and then around our root system because you know as the further we got into biodynamics the more that we realized that the show is in the soil 
You you have so many great quotes, but one of my the favorites show is, is in the soil. It's, it's a t-shirt. There's another t-shirt. There's there's a video of I don't know if it's a video. It's, I remember hearing you say this one time. You had a handful of soil, and you said there's more microbes in this handful of soil than there are are people on the planet. Yeah, what I found out that that's an underestimate. Oh Jesus. So in a handful of, of really healthy soil, there can be more than 15 billion, that's B, billion yeah. microorganisms. So, you know, and it's really, the, it's really those microorganisms that um, do the, the work um, that we equate to appellation, that we equate, that we equate to authenticity, yeah. and that in food, we equate to nutritional density. Right. Or if we're growing medicine, that we equate to the ability to heal. So, so, you know, maybe we could step back a little bit because we all know about biodynamics and about organic farming, um, but th th hopefully some people that, well, I, I wish everybody knew about it, but most likely some people listening don't know about it. Can you give your, your quick synopsis about, you know, how you ended up deciding that we were going to farm biodynamically and, um, and and what that process was like? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my quick... And, and I know that's like five episodes, to be quite <laughs> honest, but um, just a start. You know, don't forget, it's, it's biodynamics. It's called BD, which also stands for big deal. <laughs> but anyway, my, my quick down and dirty definition is, is that biodynamics is the most advanced and holistic form of organic farming. So um, it does two things really, really good. It regenerates the soil. In other words, it builds biological capital. And the second thing that it does is that it individualizes the farm. Over time, because mm -hmm. it's a closed system, you build proprietary biology in the soil. And it's that proprietary biology that, that um, will give you the attributes of your property, the attributes of the appellation, uh, and, and uh, that's how it's imbued into the wine, through the microbiology. And the thing about that, the microbiology, and to sort of further Mike's point here, is, is what is, you know, especially in like a volcanic vineyard where the soils are, are the, there's not a lot of soil, the nutrients and minerals in those soils are bound, they're not available to the plants. When you build the microbiology, that's what is creating that link between the rocks in the vineyard and the root system in the vineyard. And then you can go even a step further and get into the, the communication that's happening through this microbiome from, from micro, you know, those millions and billions of organisms, but also it ends up going from vine to vine. Yeah. And you start to create uh, just a, 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 the individualization of the, of the vineyard is a really great way of putting it, because you start to create... Um, uh, a community, uh, an identity to that site. And it's not just about the grapevines. It's anything that you grow there. Um, People start to taste the soil. They start to start taste to the soil. Say, yeah. it, it starts to... It's be, a you know. sense of place. Yeah, yeah. It really well, you is. know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, what, what, you're, what you're talking about because um, it's, this, this is the biodynamic wheelhouse. It's two things. One, it's uh, creating a, uh, an active, healthy, and very diverse group of microorganisms that live in the soil. And, um, you know, the funny thing is that, and I kind of put it in the description, um, it took 60 seconds. It was 60 seconds of video. Um, but he was definitely going slow f because he knew I was filming him and he wanted, you know, to, uh, he was, afterwards he said, um, when he's really flowing, and this was fixing vines that hadn't taken, so it was, you know, not a f rhythm. But if he's in a vineyard where, 
it's a full new planting. It's about 40 seconds of vine. Well, and uh, since we've been having dog and power problems <laughs> outside here, and so we're kind of starting over again, you, you just put a really nice uh, piece on Facebook that talked about grafting, and that's what we're <laughs> going over. Um, you know, because people don't understand that. They don't understand clones. Right. They, they don't understand exactly what they are. But grafting is so interesting. I mean, you can see it in fruit trees. You can see it in a lot of other uh, plants and things like that. But, you know, the way you were doing it, and I can see that, you know, when they are in the groove and they're really moving, that they can probably do an awful lot. Yeah, you know, 40, 40 seconds of vine. Uh, 2,000 vines an acre. Uh, that's m more math than I can do. There but, you, go. you know, it's... Um, Stop right there. Yes. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit on that one while I'm ahead. Well, that's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say... 80,000 million seconds <laughs> divided by 60. It takes all day. It takes <laughs> a while. Times, times pi squared. It, it, it's a fun thing to do. So... And uh, I will make sure that we do say, hey, welcome back to the winemakers episode, uh, the right. second one. It was commercial breaks. Yeah. So we should put some commercials into this. There we go. <laughs> Dog and I'm sure the, uh, the pot. <laughs> Sonoma's best is where you go. Get your wine. Uh, and uh, I'm sure the podfather can edit something out. So, All right. And now we're pouring the reds. So that's a good thing. It's a beautiful day. Oh, four. Where did this come from? Okay. Bart, don't dump that out. No, don't dump anything out. Never. There wasn't a lot left. But Bart, get into a microphone if you can. So we just we opened a bottle of 2004 tribute. Ooh, nice. Made at Benziger Family Winery. It was been in my cellar. Maybe not necessarily stored the greatest, but. I think it's still tasting pretty good. Anybody have any comments? Tastes like, you know, Sonoma grown old Bordeaux. And Bart, no, uh, with the tribute good. wines, I believe there's uh, four points of contact on this wine. Could you uh, maybe uh, explain that? Really? You're going to ask me? Yeah. To go back? Yeah. So, what were you doing in 2004, Bart? Um, I was probably um, chasing people around the cellar. <laughs> Um, trying to keep up with my list that Mike had for me and my list that Joe had for me. Actually, Joe never had a list. Joe always shot from the hip. Um, and it was usually when we were just starting a project for Mike. So um, to say the least, that they kept us busy here. Yeah, you got four thumbprints, four fingerprints on this wine. One would be uh, Vineyard. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the four, four fingerprints that I always refer to would be uh, the fingerprint of the place. Mm -hmm. Vintage, yep. the fingerprint of the um, varietal, yep. and the fingerprint of the people that made it. Yeah. And is any one stronger than the other, in your opinion, Mike? No. They're well, all, all there might be. I think the one that, that probably is the most meaningful is, is the intentionality of, of the people that made it. There you go. What you wanted to do with it. Yeah. And what you wanted it to be when it grew up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a real believer in that the attitude of the operator is directly proportional to the quality of the product. Now that is a perfect quote. I, I couldn't it really agree, is. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, it's why there's great wine made in all kinds of places, all kinds of soils and terroirs and climates all over the world. Um, 
and Twasel why there's crappy wine made in all those places. Just because you have a great site and the best equipment in your winery um, doesn't mean that you're going to make great wine. Uh, you know, you probably have to have those things, but um, you know the 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 intention, the attitude of the farmer and the winemaker is um, should come through. I mean, that is the you know. I, the way that my dad says it is is five the the five tenets of of you know terroir is the the climate the aspect um, the soil mm -hmm. the geography and then the fifth being the the farmer the right? farmer yeah Kazjif yeah C A S G F that's real catchy yeah we should probably not put that on <laughs> a T shirt <laughs> but but the the biodynamic practice is oriented around intentionality. So, you know, there's a whole part of biodynamics that is homeopathic, where we grow and we produce these healing medicines, you know, that heal the earth and heal the plant and heal the farmer. And in the process of growing these um, uh, medicines and in making these medicines, um, there's lots of time to reflect on, on the process and to bring intentionality, attitude, thankfulness, um, and gratitude into, into the process. And when the Benziger property has the best tour, and if people are a little bit kind of confused about biodynamics or it sounds like it's very woo-woo California, you know, if you come to a tour or you can go to YouTube and watch some videos. Mike, I love some of the videos that you've done where you're showing how you're putting the manure into the cow horns and why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And you show and breaking up the quartz and, and spraying it on the leaves up in the air and it's coming down on the leaves and it's refracting. And how you're trimming up the valeria and spraying that on the compost in the wintertime to keep it warm. I mean, when you hear someone actually, when you're watching them do it and you hear the intention and you hear the reasons for why they're doing what they do, it all makes sense and comes together. It's it's when you sort of try and bite off more than you can chew with biodynamics that people get a little uh, overwhelmed, I think. When you, when you look at each individual little practice that gets done, it makes total sense. Yeah, I think people look at it um, in, in, in a piecemeal way, too, and they don't look at the, you know, the thing as a holistic practice, and that kind of throws them off a little bit at the same time. You know? yeah. But um, you know, in biodynamics, 50% you know, um, of the resources are spent on creating the environment around the plant and 50% is, 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 you know, used or maybe less on the plant itself where in conventional agriculture, a hundred percent of the resources mm. are focused only on the plant. Yeah. So in other words, in, in the practice of, of, you know, heightened organics or, or biodynamics is, is that we invite nature in to do the heavy lifting of yeah. growing the grapes and making the wine yeah. where in the, in con conventional agriculture, it's more about, hey, nature, get the fuck out of here. You know, yeah. we know what we're doing. Let you us know, manipulate. Just, yeah, leave us alone and, and uh, you know, don't get in our way because yeah. we'll, we'll bulldoze you out of the way anyway. Yeah. I, think, I think one of the things that I learned that made the biggest impact on me when I started working for you guys is that we were thoughtful about the things that we did as opposed to just reacting and, um, and, and doing what needed to be done in the winery. Um, and Alan York used to say this, is that the thing about biodynamics is that you have to be so well organized in order to farm this way that you're going to make better wine, but it also gives you the opportunity to be thoughtful in what your practices are going to be and, and, and what steps you're going to make. 
And that was something that was I had to relearn myself yeah. because I was so used to just doing whatever we needed to do just to get the work done. Yeah. So, I, and, yeah I, and, I, I, and I thank you for that because it's made me a better winemaker and probably a better person also, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, it was thank, thanks to, to Alan and, and Biodynamics, um, we learned what the most important tool in farming is. It's not a tractor. It's not a pair of pruning shears. It's consciousness. Uh, between Conscious here, yeah. is, consciousness is the number one tool when it comes to farming. So uh, if, if you don't have a, a, a heightened state of, of awareness when you're out there farming, um, you're not going to be able to, to keep, keep in touch and you're not going to be able to keep up with the plants. And that's why people give up and they just manipulate and they use chemicals and other things that can... Um, do shortcuts in farming and compensate. nature. Yeah. Compensate for because they don't want to have to think about yeah. it that hard or plan or plan it that much. Like you said, you know, it, it, it takes an effort to be able to do it. But in the end, it, it pays off because you're rebuilding the environment at the same time that you're building a wine. Yeah. What is it they say? The hardest thing, the hardest thing is to do nothing. The hardest. <laughs> it, it's it's a, it's a, a strategic plan to do nothing. Yeah. And, you know, when you get paid a lot of money to do stuff, you know, <laughs> it's hard to justify sitting on your hands and doing nothing. Feel you guilty. Know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, get, you, you, you spend a lot of time figuring out how to justify your existence. Hard yeah. to build. You know, those aren't billable hours, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I think you guys, if you guys all agree, I think we're on a, a little bit of limited time with Mike because he's got to get going. Um, can we just skip forward a little bit? We, we got the sale of the... Of the Benziger Winery, mm -hmm. and uh, what are you doing? What are you doing with your time day to day now? Yep. So um, we had a good run with the Benziger Winery. Uh, we sold uh, the Glen Ellen in 1993, and um, we sold our, our piece of Benziger in 2015, I think. Sounds so right. yeah. yeah. So you know, 20, 22, 23 year run with Benziger was was great. And, uh, you know, I mean, if I had to work in the wine business and at Benziger for the rest of my life, God damn it, that would have been the best job anybody could ever imagine, ever. Um, but I was given the incredible opportunity to, to uh, be able to open the book to Chapter 3 and um, be able to start my own farm. And I, I always had a dream about broadening um, my... Uh, ability to um, experience horticulture you know I mean being a viticulturist was great but I always wanted to, to grow more than just grapes and so when I had an opportunity in, in 2015 um, to um, move from the winery to, and start my own farm I jumped at it yeah. and uh, you know at first I had no idea what I was doing or how to do it and after three or four years I even no less <laughs> but you're having more fun now but i'm too. having a hell of a That's lot of fun idea, you know you know you, you're you, the hope is you you move from being an idiot to just stupid you know in 60 years <laughs> you know you could sit out here every it's day and just look at this and, and breathe deeply yeah. and That's all i could hope for <laughs> you're in such beauty here mike every yeah. day you just enjoy it yeah i got to tell you something too is that um in this whole practice of growing things one of the things that's the most underrated and i'm glad you brought the word up is the word and the 
impact of beauty. Because there's no doubt in my mind that, um, of course, humans are sensitive to it, but there's no doubt in my mind that plants and animals are more sensitive to beauty than even humans are. Because plants never move. They stay in one place for their entire existence. So they get to experience the beauty of a place 24-7. And so that's where humans can come in and with their sense of organization and help organize a garden or organize a place so that it naturally has beauty and integration. Beauty and life. Yeah. Life Look at the light. life around us yeah. on this mountain. A volcano. You know, you know, nice little dip. Yeah. Beautiful spot. Yeah. And, you know, you, you learn over time that it takes life to create more life. And the more life that there is, um, eventually it, it eventually what happens is that it takes food and elevates it to a medicine. And that happens through the use of, of the, the life that lives in the soil. So food is elevated um, by the microorganisms that live in the soil, and food is elevated to medicine by the photons that flood the, the property from the sun every day. That is the common denominator to all life, isn't it? The yeah. sun. Mm. Without it. We're gone in what, four, and this, four minutes? Yeah. I think. <laughs> well, think about it. The sun is, you know, of course, is the, the, uh, the driving force for photosynthesis. And photosynthesis Everything. is what drives the exudites or the sweet little catnip into the tips of the roots that drive the microorganisms crazy. And over time, that create the soil. So sun, plant, microorganism, soil. Yeah. That's that's the progression. And, and it's the only thing we get for free. And I say that kind of jokingly, but the sun is the thing that we get for free out here. Yeah. And um, you know, what we do is really expensive in making these wines and making growing this food that is of such high, you know, nutritional value and medicinal value. Um that you know, we get the sun for free. Yeah. And we have to take advantage of that as much as we can and bring just like you said, bring those sun rays into the soil. I and mean, you know, that's that's part of our responsibility as farmers and doing that we're also bringing carbon into the soil and taking carbon out of the air and and building car you know soil carbon and and that's about global warming and climate change is about too much carbon in the air and if we as farmers have not only the ability but i, I believe the responsibility to uh, be a part of that and farm in a way that um does that not all farming does that no absolutely but, but not because you know look at look at iowa and nebraska and yeah. and the areas so poisonous now the soil i mean they've just ruined it yeah. and you know the industrial farmers have no consciousness they really don't care about what they're doing it's just volumes um it's just what you're doing and where you've done it has been absolutely stunning. So when we started this property in 19, let's say 1980, the SOM, or the soil uh, organic material, was a little bit less than 1%. When we sold it in 2015, the uh, soil um, organic material was over 4%. And so that's when you can start working off the interest. You gave back. You, yeah. You and, helped. And for every percentage of soil organic material, per acre, you sequester it's in the tons of carbon, tons. So really, right now, the solution 
to the global warming crisis, and 41 percent of, of, of the carbon that's polluting the atmosphere comes from farming, more than transportation. The solution is in changing our, our, our farming practices to be able to regenerate the soil, create more soil life, and to lock up more carbon in the soil, which will have a di the direct effect of creating foods that are more nutritious. And when foods are more nutritious, then we think deeper thoughts and we think things out with, with a little bit better planning. And then at the end of the day, we become better stewards of the earth. But we can't do that without good nutrition. If we're not, if, if we're, if we're, if we're not healthy and we're not sustained, and we're just living life, you know, on a survival basis, all bets are off on the planet. Now, you just took a phone call, somebody wanting your food. Yeah. And that was, was that Ari? Yeah. Down at the Star? Yeah. Okay, so well, here, here's this really beautiful, tiny restaurant, doing it right, and he's buying food from you yeah. and serving it to us. And that's where the whole circle becomes complete. You know, I mean, we're... we're <laughs> I think the first time I liked Brussels sprouts was when I had them from Ari. Now they That's had because of the they, bacon. They yeah, bacon. now let me bacon and brown sugar. I, I'm the same way as you. I didn't like Brussels sprouts either until they're completely impregnated with bacon and molasses, but, and man, like you never even taste a Brussels sprout. It's like guy, it's like eating a side of bee, like a side of uh, pig. That that guy is indeed uh, an incredible. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, you know, there's there's a probably a whole nother show in the fact that. Um, you know what Sam was talking yeah. about. Um, we do all this work in harnessing the the um, the resources um, that surround us, whether it's the soil, or the the sun, the rain, or whatever. Um, but to get that to into a bottle and to get it to the person who's going to enjoy it, and at, with the highest level of energy and the highest level of intent, takes us takes a special very meticulous form of, of processing so that um, none of that is lost in translation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, Perfect. I, was, that's, I, I don't know if I can wrap it up any more than that, but uh, then, you know, this is where the differences are made between even fancy expensive wine and really good wine. And, and that's... Um, you know, when you go to a wine shop or you go to a restaurant or you're buying wine from, you know, a winery, um, those are the differences that really make uh, your, you know, that's what drives value. Mm -hmm. and if you have somebody who's farming this way and making wine with this level of intent. Um, and integrity. It's, it's, worth, it's yeah. worth every penny. Um, it's, there's, it's no gimmicks. It's no hype. It's, it's real farming, no bullshit. real wine. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Well, hey, thanks everybody, and and uh, Bart, I want you to wrap this up because you're you're the one who you know really worked with uh, Mike and er everything. So yeah. take a minute, and we're not I, I, we're not selling thanks, wine today. Right. No, so. we're not. <laughs> thank, uh, Mike, thank you very much for doing this. I think there's another episode here. We'd love to to pick your brain even more someday, but we'll we'll catch up after uh, a little bit later on that. So thank you very much. Uh. My, my, my pleasure. Next time we'll lock the dog up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We needed two shows. We got them. Right. Yeah. I don't know if, if uh, you know, what, what your, uh, your listeners uh, perceive what happened, but the dog had, had, has kicked over the, uh, the technical <laughs> equipment twice <laughs> and, and screwed us up a couple of times. Well, so. and, and, you know, and, and here's the thing is that we are broadcasting from 
um, Sonoma Mountain, um, and a beautiful uh, biodynamic garden. Uh, I think we're actually being powered by solar panels right now. Yep. Um, and so this is, this is most likely a first, certainly a first in wine podcasting. Um, so, Mike, thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to more conversations with you, and uh, have a good rest of your harvest. Oh, thanks. You guys make it fun. All right. Hey, everybody, uh, we'll be right back after a short break. All right, we are back, and what an interesting afternoon with Mike Benziker. Uh, we're so lucky to be up here on Sonoma Mountain and in the beautiful California sunshine, man. It is a perfect day, so... It is. Uh, we're we're fi- getting some sunshine, which we desperately need. It's not particularly warm. I mean, it's in the mid seventies yeah. right now. It's perfect. Uh, but that's. Um, it's not necessarily a ripening day. It's not a ripening day. Well, what no. what is happening in the field, Sam? And we're just uh, we're kind of tying up the yeah. episode from. Sorry about uh, the little the power shortage uh, a couple times, guys. But uh, everybody, you know, with garden just, pups, yeah. and you know, it, we're in a biodynamic farm. Life is dynamic, and uh, <laughs> the dogs got in the way. Diverse. That's how diverse. That's how it works. Um, but Gotta you know, it. we um, we're at least ten days behind on just everything about everything that uh, I've looked at as far as the vineyard goes. That's what I was doing today. We we haven't had. Um, you know, it's been that we've been this cool kind of cycle where even on these sunny, warm days, sitting here and you know in the sunshine, like Bart said, it's seventy-five degrees. This is the maybe the very bottom end of what ripen you know builds sugars and, and ripens grapes. We really want it about ten degrees warmer than this uh, to to get that final push. Yeah, um, and I I've been out in the vineyard. I was up at Los Chamas all this week, and I would say it's you know seven to ten days behind. Um, it's really interesting. Everything is now officially all um, turned. You right, know, there's no right. more green fruit at all. Um, there's some exposed fruit that's starting to kind of get some flavors, um, but there's a bunch of stuff that still doesn't have much just, flavor. Enough flavor. Yeah, that's exactly. What, it's yet. flat. You know, you're, uh, the fl- everything's kind of flat tasting. Right. You know, there's just not. You know, you know, it, there's it's a grape. How long can you let it, it hang? No. Till it starts raining. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it just depends. No if it rain. gets really hot and we get some sort of weird heat spike and things start to go backwards, then it needs to be picked, most likely. Wow. Um, if it stays cool um, or stays, you know, nice temperate weather, it can hang until um, the winemaker decides. Um, you know, I, I was up looking at the Shannon. Um, I went up this week, and what was looking really beautiful, um, you know, we had some fog up there, and because it wasn't... Um, because it wasn't warm enough, um, a little botrytis is starting to right. set in in the vineyard, you know, and you know, cold it, and wet. Yeah, and it's and it's not gonna it's not gonna ruin the crop, but it has to make us we all have to kind of think about it a little bit differently, yeah. um, and how we're gonna handle it, and it's gonna get picked a little sooner than later, and um, but that's you know, like we say, that's why it's called farming. <laughs> well, I think we're supposed to get another. Uh, we're gonna get a uh, the temperature is gonna go up about ten degrees. Um, I think next week. So we'll, yeah. we'll we'll finish off with some with some eighty. So hopefully that'll help you guys and get you yeah. I mean I think to the finish line. That's what we're looking at is um, things are going to start to happen next week. Yeah. Um, you know we have the the Viognier at Steel Plow uh, probably among the first. Uh, the Chardonnay that I'm doing just for you, Brian, um, up at, <laughs> um, <laughs> on Moon Mountain from the Charlie, the Charlie Smith Vineyard. I'm changing um, my last name to Chardonnay. <laughs> Brian Chardonnay. Brian Burgon. I like it. I like it. 
Brian Chablis. Oh, that's got a good Brian name. Blanc. Oh, yeah, Brian Blanc. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You've just changed your name, man. That's I don't know. It. That Viognier sounded good when you yeah. started talking about Viognier. Brian Viognier. The Viognier, Viognier is, um, it's another one where, you know, there's, you, it's it's evenly ripened, but, you you know, the, the berries that are in the sunshine are starting to have some flavor. Everything yeah. else is just kind of just like a grape. Well, that's yeah. not what you yeah. want, Vignet. You definitely want those aromatics. Yeah, you and want the, th- the phenolics. You want the you want that real pretty mm-hmm. smell, but not but not too much. Yeah, and it's it's definitely that has that perfumey thing going right now, which we don't really like. Which is when yeah. it kind of lets it sit, let the skins kind of sit on your tongue. You kind of get that sort of perfumey, and it's but it's very thin. floral. It's thin, which means mm-hmm. that when you turn it into wine, you're not going to have any richness or, or texture to it. Uh, but the interesting thing, uh, you know, usually the Steel Plow Vineyard. Um, you know, the Viognier gets a lot of those sort of stone fruit flavors, uh, peach, nectarine. What what I think is going to happen, based on some of the berries that I've tasted, you're going to get a little bit more of like the tropical fruit, banana, just because of that hang time. You know, it's a place that we don't get as much hang time usually. But, uh, you know, this year we're going to get those, you know, it's going to be a beautiful vintage as soon as we get it off, um, kind of across the board. Because of this hang time, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fruit and... Um, it's it's hanging. Um, it's gonna get really hanging right. Hanging with, with integrity. integrity. Hang with in- <laughs> I actually have a good picture of hanging with integrity in dappled sunlight. There you uh, go. From this morning in some Cabernet. So you know another thing I'll, we'd I'll like to, I'd like to say is we want to pay respect to um, uh, yeah. the wine industry. Lost a, another great man. Um, I guess yesterday, um, Ulysses uh, Valdez. Um, uh, I first met Ulysses when I was working for the Benzigers. Um, he was running Jack Florence Vineyard Management, which eventually became his own company. And um, he passed away suddenly and at a at a rough time for his family and their um, Relatively vineyard management young age, business too. and their winery. 49. And, yeah, 49 Jeez. years old. Um, I, I spoke with Jeff Cohen this morning. Jeff, of course, is very, very close with Ulysses. He's, he, 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 um, so Jeff's, Jeff's in a... In a tough spot right now he's lost two real close friends and yeah. so just want to let everybody know we're thinking about them yeah yeah it's uh it's ulysses is one of those guys who um you know i, I posted this on on facebook and and twitter but um you know he's the the definition of the american dream um, success right and you know from crossing the border as a teenager <laughs> what three times you know he's the three times is the official story when i talked to uh, he talked at uh, um the very first a7 conference we did uh, he's you know sort of famous for lots of things but he grows amazing grenache grew amazing grenache um really that probably was that like in the 40 or 50 attempts the third the three is like getting caught three times and brought over uh multiple attempts you know just trying to is it was his father had died he needed to make money this and is what support makes himself great. and his family and comes here as a teenager works in the vineyards um you know moves up into to management positions becomes a partner in a company owns the company, makes wine, has, you know, kids, you know, in the business, kids in college, the whole deal. Like, this is what America is supposed to be. So, um, you know, it's a lot of self-determination. It's it's, um, an icon of that, that, you know, when I when I think about the Ulysses Valdez um, legacy, you know, it's going to be obviously the great wines. But, um, 
you know, what what we're capable of uh, when we do our best in, in wine country. So. Yeah. Tell me about Taco Duron. Oh, Tacos Duron. All right, well, that's an uh, abrupt and <laughs> to transition to joyousness. Well, uh, it was a great <laughs> Instagram post, by the way. I love that label. Yeah. The label, that's a yeah. that's a Paul White original. Go to give props to Pablo uh, Blanco, awesome. 62 out there. there. Um, Tacos Duron is... Uh, will be coming happening the weekend this comes out, uh, September 23rd uh, at the Tasting House. Um, uh, so Taco Drone was the very first event I ever did at the Tasting Room three and a half years ago, and it was simple. I just got a taco truck. About 27 people showed up. All of them were my friends, so we made zero money. Um, but I had a party with a taco truck, which is really all I've ever wanted to do in life. Uh, so this time we're going a little <laughs> bit We're going a little bit bigger. Uh, we have the fig rig coming, doing duck confit and pulled pork tacos. Uh, I have my buddy Clifford Brown, who uh, Clifford Brown the third great uh, grandson of the legendary jazz trumpeter uh, Clifford Brown, and so he's going to be doing a set with the DJ, and then he's going to be doing a set with the, nice. a full band. Uh, I, and Stanley Mouse, I just talked to Stanley Mouse, and he's coming bringing a bunch of art. Wow. So it's going to be um, it's going to be a, an epic way to celebrate the end of Grenache weekend. Grenache does, it needs a whole weekend now, Brian. It can't just be Grenache Day as a good start, right. but it's Friday night, so we might as well. It's very very French going. of us to I, roll I was actually all the way to, through to Sunday night. I, I'm, I'm there with you. I was going to the opposite end of the spectrum. I was thinking that we needed a month. Grenache month. Grenache just month. Grenache year. How about it's just it's wow. Grenache? Year. Always Grenache. <laughs> Always Grenache. <laughs> There My poor Chardonnay. All oh, right, we can have Chardonnay. I think in the a morning. month is a good. I think a month is a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. And 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 I know pouring uh, Saturday at the Roan Room is uh, Casey Graybell and Peter Mathis. Oh, excellent! I know Lightning Wines is pouring on Sunday, oh. the same day as your. Are we going to get uh, a, Durham, a, But I don't know if that means that Randy Hester is in uh, town. Or Randy's not going to be in town until next month. I talked to Brooke. But, okay. Um, I. I He's got. I mean, this has got to be go time in Texas. We're gonna get him on. Yeah, yeah well, he's actually yeah. already picked a bunch of stuff. In right, Texas he's probably in like yeah deep into primary deep fermentations. Into fermentation, yeah. yeah so, Lucky uh, but we'll all be at uh, Grenache Day on uh, Friday, doing our own thing, and then feel free to celebrate the entire weekend. Um, and uh, I'm gonna start now. Well, yeah, that's. <laughs> I think that's a good idea, and, and let's get our our shout outs to to everyone uh, involved. I you know. Todd Jolly at Sonoma's Best, Sondra Bernstein at the Roan Room and at the Grill and the Fig, and um, whoever works at Bottle Barn. I mean, whoever works there, Barry I don't Herbst. Care. Barry, uh, Barry's the man. Yeah, thank you for your uh, Chateau Moussard Rosé 2017, which is... What? Right. <laughs> Brian, you got to go to the there's, Bottle Barn There's some for crazy me. shit. Yeah. And, and you can pick up your uh, Louis Roeder, uh, the uh, Brut, the Natural. Uh, oh, the Brut Natural. Uh, yeah, you oh, can pick that up for man. 70 bucks at Bottle Barn, if they still have any. I got a, I got a bottle for my wife. Um, made her very happy. Brian, you got to just tell me when you're at Bottle Barn. Um, maybe, okay, I, I take it back. I'm just going to give you a budget. For when you're a bottle barn, you have <laughs> to spend you fifty dollars yeah. for me. There's or, and if you don't do perfect. it in one day, you like you know roll it up, be like buy a twenty dollar bottle yeah. of rosé, and then the next week you can get me an eighty dollar bottle of champagne. But see, yeah. there's Here's like the fifty problem. bucks a week. Is that Brian is known for like when he gets wine? Oh right, he, he drinks it. <laughs> that's right. okay. I like I'll be that supporting comment. Brian's Instagram account. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> At Sonoma Wine Lover. Exactly right. <laughs> Bart? Um, you know, I uh, uh, plugs to all the people that um, that continue to support the Winemakers Podcast and all of yeah. our friends here. I wish everybody a great harvest. Um, I'm going to be get, staying busy with uh, keeping my trips to vineyards and trying to sell a little wine on the side. 
and um, just looking forward to this year's harvest. You want to buy some Zinfandel? Um, I got some Zinfandel for you, Brian. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> nice. And, and by the time this show airs, uh, Bart, you probably will have picked Shannon, I'm thinking. Shannon will definitely be picked and yeah. be fermenting. And, um, and you uh, and Zinfandel Hardy and uh, Pax can, uh, can, can all get in a uh, circle in the vineyard and wrestle over uh, who gets each row. Yeah. I would make for I got good money television. on Bart for this one. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably have uh, Pax the... is a big dude though. Pax yeah. is a dude and but and don't under overlook a fish fan. That's all I gotta say about Hardy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh putting up uh, with our electrical glitches on uh it's such a beautiful day. That's but why it's podcasting and not that, radio. That's right. <laughs> it's live, and I have never seen such a beautiful sight as Sonoma Mountain on today. So, yeah, yeah, we have the thanks. best studio in the world today. Thank yeah. Mike Bendiger. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks. <laughs>